Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to be discussing my forthcoming book, Principles of Economics, which is going to be released on June 21st, 2023. If you've ordered it from my website, safedean.com, you will probably be receiving it as this episode is being broadcast around mid-May. The audiobook is coming sometime in June. But the ebook and the hardcover book for pre-orders from my website are being sent as we speak. So you will be getting them as this episode is released sometime in mid-May. You can order it from various suppliers and various bookshops all over the world. And you can also order it from my website where we deliver pretty much worldwide. 
So I thought I would take oh, one episode of this podcast to talk about the book, what I tried to do with the book, the circumstances behind writing it, why it took me so long, and what you can expect to get if you were to delve into its um, meaty 400 plus pages of pure Austrian economics. I would say the motivation for writing a textbook on economics has been something that I've had since I learned of Austrian economics and since I came to understand Austrian economics and realized just how different it is from the regular economics that I had been exposed to beforehand. Pretty much everybody learns the regular kind of economics at university and you just continue to struggle with trying to make sense of it and it doesn't make much sense. And then you get, if you do succeed in getting to the Austrian perspective, suddenly everything begins to make sense and economics stops being this extremely weird esoteric uh, knowledge and it turns into just basic common sense understanding of um, real world phenomena. And that is something that's very useful for people to have. And I think it's something that would truly benefit people if they were to learn it at a university level or even at school level. It seems to me this is extremely important and even essential knowledge that everybody should know in order to be able to make healthy, correct decisions in their life. But unfortunately, we don't learn these things at most universities today. We learn the uh, Keynesian economics, which is, if you follow this podcast, if you've read my first two books, you know my problems with it. I have a lot of problems with it. And in this book, I try to come up with the alternative narrative, the Austrian pure narrative of economics without trying to pollute it too much with arguing with the mainstream narrative. So I think one major motivation for writing this book was not just to write an Austrian textbook, but also to write a purely Austrian textbook that's out there just putting the Austrian side of the story without wasting half of its pages trying to argue with the Keynesian aspect of the story, the mainstream story, the mainstream uh, conception of uh, modern economics. And that's something that I find is probably the biggest flaw and the most off-putting thing about most Austrian books, that they concede way too much to the mainstream and spend far too much time trying to rebut the mainstream and answer its uh, objections and answer its fallacies and point them out to the point where it ends up becoming boring and confusing to the reader. So it doesn't take much to establish the fact that Keynes was clearly clueless, that Keynes in economics is ridiculous. So then if you spend hundreds of pages going over every single uh, error that they make, it can detract from your ability to deliver the Austrian perspective. And so for me, the main motivations for writing this book was to be able to deliver the Austrian perspective as it is. And so to try and just conceive the main Austrian points on economics and present them in a uh, modern, easy-to-read, easy-to-understand language that the modern reader can enjoy reading, not to get it too bogged into technical details and academic debates, and instead focusing on the useful part of this field of study. What is useful about economics? What is it that you... I, I think the motivation for me in writing this is what is it that I would have liked to have had as a 17-year-old or as an 18-year-old as I finished high school? What would I have liked to have learned about economics? Looking back now, 25 years later, after having studied economics at university level and having taught economics 
this is what I think after 25 years. This is what I think I would have liked to have learned at age 17, 18 about economics. And I tried to condense as much of that information into one book, try and make it as interesting and as concise as possible so that the reader can enjoy reading it and at the same time learn from it. And all these things, I believe, are essential in order to make a book readable. You don't want to just make it a settling of scores or you don't want to just completely dedicate the book toward refuting others. You want to primarily make it valuable for the reader. So the idea for this book, as I was saying, is something that came to me a very long time ago. And as I began working as a university professor in uh, the Lebanese American University, I taught a few courses that arguably formed the genesis of this book. So I, I started for, I, I taught, I developed a course, which I taught to graduate students and to seniors, uh, which was Austrian economics, basically. And it explained economics from the Austrian perspective. It was pretty popular with the students. They, a lot of them enjoyed it. Many of them have become avid fans of Austrian economics since then. And I think many have, the, have told me that uh, they think they benefited more from that course than they did from their regular mainstream courses, mainstream economics courses. So I thought this would be something very useful to have to, to, to develop this textbook because the problem with teaching economics from the Austrian perspective is that it's not easy to do it because there isn't an easy textbook. So there isn't one regular textbook that you could go to that could just form a reference for a course. In order to do that course, in order to teach that course, I had to rely on various chapters from various books. And it's pretty difficult to rely on one book only. Um, the two most obvious choices would be Human Action by Mises and uh, Man, Economy, and State by Rothbard. But these are monstrous books. They're very difficult for your average undergraduate to read. They're very difficult for anybody in 2023 to read almost well, not anybody, but for most people, I mean, this is a pretty uh, heavy reading. It's not very easy to navigate. And it's uh, pretty uh, intense in, in, in its content. And a lot of the content, as I was saying earlier, is geared toward arguing with the mainstream. It's Mises going over and over and over and over again over the um, misconceptions that mainstream economists have. And Rothbard does the same thing and uh, trying to make the Austrian arguments using the methodology of mainstream economists. And that can be quite dire reading. It takes a lot of slogging through, a lot of boring prose in order to get to the punchlines. So I, I wanted to try and take the main ideas from those books and deliver them in a concise way without having to go too deep into the academic debates and too deep into the uh, arcane theoretical details of economic writing. Try and communicate them instead in a manner similar to the writing of the Bitcoin standard and the fiat standard. So based on the feedback that I got from people about the Bitcoin standard, telling me how much they enjoyed it, that they, they, they liked the way that I explained difficult economic concepts in a simple way, I thought I wanted to do that with this book. And so I started working on this book right after I finished uh, the Bitcoin Standard, right after I published the Bitcoin Standard. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, 
Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. And in uh, 2019 is when I uh, began to really work on this, and it took me four years to finish it. During that time, I also got the idea for the Fiat Standard, and I conceived the idea, and I wrote the book and published it while I was still working on principles of economics. I could have probably finished Principles of Economics a little bit earlier if I hadn't been distracted by the Fiat standard, obviously. However, I still think I couldn't have finished it much earlier because I needed a lot of time to work on this book because it wasn't something that was just a labor of just sitting down and writing things that I already knew, which to an extent, a lot of the Bitcoin standard was like that. A Bitcoin standard is a lot of stuff that I've known for a lot of time that I wanted to get out. And I just, uh, as soon as I could figure out a format of how to, I could put it into a book in a coherent narrative that is focused on Bitcoin, then writing it all out was relatively straightforward. With this book, it was a lot more complicated because I didn't uh, practice from scratch in that I spent a lot of time trying to think of how to present those ideas. So how can I communicate those ideas in a way that is effective? How can I structure it in a way that uh, follows a logical sequence, but is also engaging to the reader? And so this is what I have come up with. And so if you look at the screen now, you can see the PDF of the book. I'm scrolling through it. And uh, I'm going to walk us through the chapters and the way that the book is structured. And if any of you has any questions today, please uh, feel free to interrupt and discuss so I'm going to walk through the, the uh, structure of the book. And over the coming couple of weeks, I'm going to be releasing some of the audiobooks chapters as podcasts for free. So you could listen to sections of the book in this podcast. The book begins with part one, which is fundamentals. The book is made up of five parts and 18 chapters. The first part is on the fundamentals of economics, you know, laying the groundwork of the mental tools that we are going to be using for this book. And it begins with chapter one on human action. I thought this would be the best place to start because this would be the best place to, at the start, explain how Austrian economics is different from the regular economics that the reader may have been exposed to in their regular fiat uh, world. And the key distinction is that Austrian economics 
looks at economics from the lens of human action. It looks at economics and all economic phenomenon as being a result of the action of human beings. So in macroeconomics, for instance, we analyze aggregates. You look at the aggregate level of spending, the aggregate level of output, the aggregate level of uh, inflation and unemployment, and you try and establish relationships between those aggregates. In the Austrian school, we don't do that. We don't begin from analyzing aggregates. The unit of analysis, the unit with which we're concerned is individual decision-making. The human being is the starting point. And so in a sense, it's much more reality-based than the la-la land of Keynesian economics, where you have all these equations about how these aggregates, which we construct arbitrarily almost, are supposed to relate to one another, that if this one goes up by this much, then the other one will go down by that much. And you start establishing those relationships, and then you get frustrated when you realize the world doesn't quite work according to your relationships. The Austrian school, you are protected from this kind of frustration by uh, protecting yourself from unrealistic expectations about what numbers can do in economics. Since ultimately economics is a phenomenon of human action, the best way to understand economic phenomena is to analyze how humans act. And this, this, I think, is a very foundational point. And in this chapter, I try and make the case for why that is the case, why this is a much more fruitful and useful way of analyzing economics than trying to analyze aggregates. And so I explain what Austrians mean by human action as and, 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 and an important way thing to explain here is that what they mean by action is rational behavior. And by rational, they, ref they don't necessarily mean that it is correct according to some objective definition. They mean that it is rational in that it is the product of deliberate reason. Human beings think, and based on their thinking, they decide to act. So when you act rationally is acting according to your reason regardless of whether uh, another person might think that you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing, regardless of whether you later on come back to think and realize and conclude that this was actually the wrong thing to do. It doesn't matter that in terms of the rationality as defined by Austrian, which doesn't refer to correct or mistaken or optimal. It refers to it being the product of reason. And so in this sense, action, rational action is what distinguishes human beings from other animals because other animals react to stimuli. And human beings, we do react to stimuli. A lot of our actions can be irrational or non-rational in that they are not the product of deliberate reason. So, you know, if you get surprised, you get scared, you could shout, if you react to pain in a certain way. Um, these are the kind of actions that are not rational actions that humans conduct. And so animals primarily function through reaction to stimuli. Human beings develop reason and understanding that reason is what drives humans is a very powerful tool in order to understand how humans behave and then how economics and economic relationships between human beings develop. So in the first chapter, try and establish that. And in the second chapter, move to the concept of value and perhaps the most fundamental difference between Austrian economists and other economists is the topic of value. From the perspective of mainstream economists, value is usually viewed as if it is something that can be measured, 
and as if it is something that can be objectively determined. From the Austrian perspective, and this is really the foundational point of Austrian economics, value is subjective. Value is something that exists only in human minds. Humans are the ones that make the valuation of other things. Humans are the ones that imbue objects with value by seeing that value in them and by choosing to act in a certain way about them. And so in this chapter two, we go over some of the basic definitions and the more important uh, concepts to understand in economics. What is utility? How is utility different from value? And the, the distinction here, of course, is that utility is the enjoyment that you get or the satisfaction that you get from an economic good. Value is what happens when you have something that has utility, but is also scarce. And so if something has utility, but it is not scarce, you do not need to economize in it. And so you do not have a valuation for it because it is extremely abundant. And so water on a um, on the banks of a very uh, fresh river is not an economic good, even though it has a lot of utility, but it's so plentiful that it doesn't have any economic value for you. You're not willing to pay for it because it's out there. It's so abundant. And so utility plus scarcity is what gives us valuation. And this is what forces us to economize. And again, based on the fact that in Austrian economics, we understand that value is ordinal rather than cardinal. And because we understand that value is subjective, it follows, therefore, that value is ordinal and not cardinal. In other words, by ordinal, we mean in that that you are able to rank different goods as opposed to one another in terms of which one you prefer. Whereas cardinal valuation refers to attributing a numerical valuation to each one of those economic goods. And so if I were to say that I prefer good A over good B, that's ordinal valuation. Cardinal valuation would be to say I value good A at 5.34 times as much as I value good B, or I value good A this amount of dollars or ounces of gold, whereas I value good B by that amount of dollars or ounces of gold. And so for all economic schools of thought, value is usually expressed in, a, in an objective way. There's a valuation and it's a number and you can put a number on valuation. And so in in uh, university textbooks of economics, the mainstream economics textbooks, you measure valuation by measuring utility and you assume that the value is equal to the utility that you get from things and you measure the utility. Sometimes it's measured using um, monetary units, so dollars. Sometimes they measure it in the book using something called utils, which is not even a real unit. It's just something that they make up so that they can give you questions um, that you can solve and so pass your exam. So we discussed that. We discussed the distinction between value and utility, the distinction between value and price. And based on that, the, explain the concept of free exchange, which is a very pivotal concept in um, economics. And that is that human beings will willingly engage in exchange with one another because they will both benefit from things. And the reason they do that is because valuation is subjective. And so when two people exchange things, one of them values one of those things more than the other, and the other one values them in an opposite way so that they both willingly agree to exchange and they both benefit from that exchange. So anytime two people exchange something, they're both benefiting from it. And so that 
is a very powerful concept which we're going to build a lot of the analysis of the book on as we move forward. And then we end chapter two by discussing marginalism and marginal analysis. And this is an important, very, very important uh, point in, in, in economics from the Austrian perspective. And that is the idea that economic analysis and economic decision-making takes place at the margin. And the chapter, I hope, tries to make a very good and clear case for why this is such a big deal and why Menger, or the, basically the father of the Austrian school of economics, coming up with this framework for analyzing economic analysis or analyzing economic phenomena has been such a huge deal. Before this, economics was bogged by what people used to call the water diamond paradox. And that went along the lines of, well, water is extremely essential for people. People can't live without water, whereas diamonds are completely inessential. Nobody needs diamonds to survive. You can survive without diamonds, but you can't survive without water. So you would expect that that would mean that diamonds are much more valuable than, uh, sorry, you would expect that that would mean that water would be far more valuable than diamonds. Why would people pay more for diamonds than water, even though they would die without water, but they wouldn't die without diamonds? And that was a difficult thing for economists to explain as long as they were thinking in the aggregate analysis, as long as they were thinking in goods in the abstract. As long as they were thinking of the total sum of the uh, water and the total sum of diamonds, as if somebody had to make a choice between water and diamonds when they went to the supermarket to buy either of those two things. But once economists started to think in terms of marginal analysis, then this began to make sense. And the key insight here is that nobody ever has to make a choice between all the world's diamonds and all the world's water. We are at any given point in time, being forced to choose between the next marginal unit of water or the next marginal unit of diamonds. And so if you are going to take an extra unit of water, then that's the unit that you're concerned with. That's the one that you're calculating the price for. That's the one you're thinking about the value of. And that's the one thing that you're comparing to spending to on diamonds. So if anybody was to be given the choice between, would you rather have only water for the rest of your life or only diamonds? You have to choose between one of those two things. If that were the case, then yeah, diamonds would be very cheap. Nobody would choose diamonds over water. Everybody would choose water over diamonds. And so the price of water would be very high and the price of diamonds would be very low. But that's not how economic activity takes place. That's not how economic decision-making takes place. In the real world, economic decision-making takes place with people making their choices about water and diamonds at the margin. In other words, at any given day, any given point in time, you are making a choice about the next unit of water and the next unit of diamonds. Now, because water is so important for us, because water is so essential for our lives, we as human beings generally live only in places that have plenty of water. And in fact, we move around because of water, and we always try and secure to ourselves access to plentiful water. And so as long as you're in one of those situations in anywhere that is a uh, basically a set, civilized, settled society with access to reliable large quantities of water, you're always being forced to choose with the next unit of water, about, you're being forced to choose about satisfying your need for a very large or a very high 
marginal unit of water. You already have a lot of water and you're thinking about the price of the next small unit that you add to the already existing large quantities of water that you have. Whereas, because diamonds are extremely rare and extremely expensive and very difficult to source, at any point in time, the vast majority of human beings exist in a world in which they don't have many diamonds. And so they're forced to make a choice about how much diamonds they, when, when they're thinking about how much money they want to pay for a diamond, it's always their first diamond or maybe their second or maybe their third. Very few people have more than three, four diamonds. So usually... It's one of the earliest units of diamond that you're getting. Whereas with water, usually you're bidding for a unit of water that is not the first or second or third. It's not essential for you. It's not the difference between life and death. Things would be very different if you were on a desert island, for instance, with no water. And if you were in that situation where you'd been, let's say, a whole 24 hours without seeing a drop of water, and in that point, at that point, in that place, if there was a market for water, you would pay a lot more for that water than diamonds. If I was selling water and diamonds there, I could get away with charging you more for the water than for the diamonds because you would die without the water. You don't die without the diamonds. And so it depends on the context and it depends on the margin, the place wherein we are making those decisions. In a modern civilized society, you're making the decision about how much water to buy. You're making the decision based on the next marginal unit, considering that you already exist in a house that has plenty of water, that you've had water in the morning, that you can have water at any point in time for a very low price. And so because of that, because of the plentiful nature of water in civilized society, you're only going to value water as at any particular transaction. The water that you're buying is only going to be the nth unit, you know, it's 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 a very high number of units uh, at the, that preceded it before you got to this one. Whereas with diamonds, it's a very low number of diamonds that you've consumed before that. So therefore, you're far more likely to attach a higher valuation on the low number of diamonds because you don't have a lot of. If you had a lot of diamonds, it would be very different. Um, if you had little amounts of water it would be very different. But for most people, you live in a place with plenty of water and very few diamonds. And so therefore, diamonds are a lot more expensive because people value the first unit of diamonds a lot more than they value the 20th unit of water that they get in a day. So these two concepts, I believe, are very important for explaining everything that we do in economics. And throughout the book, as I move through the book, we're going to see the value of looking at uh, economics through this lens. And this is, you know, the first chapter is Mises. The second chapter is primarily Karl Menger. The third chapter is not something that you would find in your regular uh, Austrian economics textbook most of the time. It is probably the kind of the least, well, I wouldn't say the least Austrian. It is Austrian. It draws on the ideas of Mises, but primarily it is the work of an economist named Julian Simon, who was very much a free market economist, although I'm not sure he would identify as an Austrian. In fact, I'm pretty sure he did not identify as an Austrian. He was a Chicago economist. But he wrote a great book called The Ultimate Resource, which I mentioned in the Bitcoin Standard. And in The Ultimate Resource, he makes a very compelling case for why it is that only truly scarce resource is actually human time. Human time is the only thing that is genuinely scarce. 
because we can make more of pretty much anything. We could keep making more and more of anything if we just direct more time to it. And this is very counterintuitive because for the vast majority of people, we live in a world in which we're constantly being told we're running out of this, we're running out of that. There isn't enough of this. There isn't enough of that. But in this chapter, I rely on Simon's ideas to try and explain what, just how much material things I, are abundant. And so at the beginning of the chapter, I discuss opportunity cost, which I believe is a very key concept and resulting from the idea that time is scarce. Because our time is scarce, we always have to choose. Even if we had everything available to us materially, we still can only spend our time in one thing or the other. And so there's always an opportunity cost to everything that we do. And that is the cause of scarcity. Because if you look at material goods, you see that they just continue to get more and more abundant. We're not running out of anything material anywhere in the world. So in, in Simon's book, which was written in 1990, he's got, he looks at data from between 1950 and 1990, and he finds that, for instance, as you see here, the proven reserves of lead grew by a multiple of three, zinc by a multiple of 4.2, copper by 5.6, iron ore by 8.2, oil by 13.1, phosphate by 14, and bauxite by 16.6. So during a time in which human population uh, more than doubled in a 40-year period in which human population grew by a multiple of 2.13, and in which human output measured by GDP, which you know is a problem in many ways, but it's not an entirely useless measure. So human production grew fivefold in those 40 years, and yet the amount of reserves that we have of everything has gone up significantly. We continue to find more of those things. And so to get some perspective on this, I ran some numbers to try and explain just how huge our earth is and how tiny all of the resources that we've dug out are compared to that. So if you look at if you look at a giant football pitch, you see if the earth, if the surface of the earth was a giant football pitch, everything, all of the world's minds are the size of a small little desk. So think about how small a desk is next to a giant football pitch. This is the surface area of all the mines that we have dug on Earth. And that's a very tiny fraction of this Earth. And in fact, if, if you look at it in terms of its volume, if the volume of the planet was one Olympic swimming pool, all of the resources that we have dug, all the mines that we have dug are the size of half a cup, roughly. We, which is basically an imperceptibly tiny amount of water in this pool, where you know every minute as much as that probably evaporates or condenses, and this uh, supply in the pool goes up or down. So thinking about this this way, I think is a much better foundation and fundamental starting point for economics. And uh, we did a podcast with Gail Pooley, which I highly recommend. Gail Pooley's written a book on, it's called Superabundance. And, and in this book, he shows just how much more abundant all material goods are becoming over time. Of course, the prices of those things go up because the money's broken, but the, the goods become more and more abundant. And if you look at this graph here, you see uh, oil consumption is this tiny little gray line at the bottom, whereas proven oil reserves continue to go up. You know, we continue to consume more and more and more, but the reserves continue to grow many, many multiples 
higher than everything that we consume. And we see this as well with all metals. We continue to find more. We continue to produce more of these metals. It's true for gold. It's true for oil. It's true for um, all these resources. Again, the discussion of uh, Simon and Ehrlich's bet, very fascinating story. Don't have time to recount the whole thing. But basically, once uh, well, I think if, once we understand this idea that economics is not about econ economizing material things because material things are not the really scarce thing because they're not a scarce thing that is given to us from heaven and that we need to manage. We as human beings, we make these resources. We create effectively these resources because we produce them and we produce them from infinitely plentiful raw material, which is the crust of the earth, which we've literally barely scratched. And we take that material and then we have to process it heavily in order to turn it into goods that offer us value and utility. That's how um, we make resources. So the scarcity really is not the scarcity of the resources. The scarcity is the scarcity of how we dedicate our time to producing those resources. We could get more of everything if we were just to economize our time away from other things and dedicate those the, that time to this thing that we want more of. We can keep making more of anything as long as we just dedicate more and more time to it. So ultimately, thinking about economics as being about economizing time is, I think, a very powerful tool to use for understanding economics. And that's why that's what I discuss in the first three chapters of the book in the foundational part. And then, of course, based on the understanding of this economizing of time, that allows us to introduce the topic of time preference which is an enormously important topic in economics, which mainstream economics barely spends any time discussing. But time preference is a universal preference for earlier over later satisfaction. If you're offered to take a satisfaction or a good now or in the future, and you have the choice between taking it now or taking it to the future, you will always choose now. It's the same identical good. We always choose the now over the future. Time preference is a universal phenomenon. However, the degree to which we economize, the degree to which do we prefer the present over the future is the degree of our time preference. So if we have a very high time preference, then we have low time preference, then our degree of preference for the present is um, high, but not very high. So we still prefer the future more, but not that much more. So this is what is referred to as time preference, which again is going to be very important in this book, particularly in the later chapters on money. And so the framework for analyzing economics in my mind is to begin with human action, subjective valuation, and the economizing of time. And so the second part of the book is called Economy, which is about economic action. In that second part of the book, I and in the second and the third part of the book, I present the actions that humans perform in order to economize. Obviously, this isn't an exhaustive list, and it's a list that contains a lot of overlap, but these are distinct categories that are worth considering in depth in their own chapters. And so chapter four discusses labor, which is the most obvious thing that we do to economize, which is something that other animals do as well. You know, we, they work to hunt. Uh, we work as well. So labor is the first thing that humans do to economize. And by economizing, as I said, you know, it, it means how to improve the value of our time on Earth and how to increase the quantity of time that we have on Earth. 
So labor is one obvious way to do it. Property is another way to do it. When we take property in ob of objects and we make, we make them ours, we manage to economize more effectively because then we can maintain this property and use it over and over again and not have to produce it every single time we need to use it. Capital is a very powerful concept. Technology is another one. It's, we keep developing new ways of economizing and new ways of carrying out economic activity, and that's what technological progress is. And then number eight is power. And by power here, I mean um, energy, uh, the, the direction or the, the, the dedication of energy towards meeting our goods, uh, meeting our needs, I should say. And then um, number nine, and so these are the individual actions from chapters four to eight, four, five, six, seven, and eight. These are individual actions that individuals do in order to increase the value and the uh, quantity of time that they have on earth. And that's part two of the book. But then in part three of the book, we look at social economizing, economizing in a market system, in a social order, in a, how people economize with one another. Or if you want economizing as a team sport, we look at how society economizes, as a, uh, how people economize when they become members of a society, because that allows them to do things much more than what they are able to do individually. So on your own, you can work, you can take property, you can accumulate capital, you can improve your technology, and you can dedicate energy and power towards meeting your needs. But when you're a part of a society, you can also trade, and then you can engage in development of money, and then you can take part in a market order. And then, you know, in, in a... If you live in a society that manages to allow people the freedom to engage in all of these economic activities for a very long time, to the point where people accumulate capital, people have secure property, people are able to develop technologically, people's consumption of power increases, people trade increasingly more, and people use a form of money, and they exist within a market order, that's what we call a capitalist system. And so the 12th chapter of the book discusses capitalism as an economic concept and explains what we mean by that much maligned term that people like to use as an insult when really it is what gets food on your table really so that's uh that's the first part of the book then we move on to discussing labor what do we mean by labor as a trade-off with leisure that you move away move around between working and enjoying yourself and you dedicate your time to work or to enjoyment and that the, the opportunity cost of labor is the leisure that you owe. We explain the process of production, how the productivity of labor improves with time through capital accumulation. We discuss the concept of unemployment. Why does such a thing exist and why do people think that it is normal? Spoiler alert, um, it's because of inflation and because of minimum wage laws. So I'm um, sorry to spoil that for you, but you should read the whole thing to get a good idea of the argument. And then we move on to property. So we discuss why property is a necessary institution for a society, how it is not possible to have a civilized society without property, because without property, without people's freedom to own property, conflict is inevitable. And with conflict, it becomes impossible to accumulate capital. It becomes impossible to engage in civilized capitalist production. And then more than just discussing the property in objects, I get into the topic of self-ownership. 
Why is self-ownership the only solution to the problem of how to decide the ownership of human beings? Ultimately, the human beings are scarce, and so somebody's going to own them. And I'll, you know, that sounds very jarring for people who are not economists. Like, how could you say somebody needs to own a human being? Well, no, somebody is going to own a human being. The only question then is whether it's going to be each person owning themselves, or if we're going to be living in a jungle where some people own everybody else, or you know, we'll find some other kind of arrangement where everybody owns everybody at the same time, which is completely unworkable. And so make argument in this chapter for why self-ownership is really the only thing that's work workable and why property rights are the only way that we can get civilized society. Then having established the importance of property in chapter six, we move toward discussing capital. And if you look at the cover of the book, you'll see the cover of the book is one big giant picture of the boat uh, and the evolution of the boat over time. So how capital accumulation takes us from one tiny little fisherman's boat that could catch a few hundred fish a day to a large sailing boat that could catch a lot more fish to or transport more goods. And then to modern day giant shipping vessels that carry thousands of containers and thousands of tons of uh, goods as people trade with one another uh, across the world. I think understanding the accumulation of capital is perhaps one of the most important things you could get from economics. And that's why this book focuses on this part of economics extensively. And so chapter six is an in-depth explanation for what capital is, why it is important, and why it's not a bad thing, and why all of these ideologies that talk about capital owners as if they are evil end up being very, very destructive, and why the conception of saving in the modern macroeconomic textbooks is completely nonsensical. So with that out of the way, we move toward discussing technology and how technological advancement increases productivity and how technological innovation is inseparable from entrepreneurship. This is one other major way in which this book departs from your economics textbook. The regular usual economics textbook that is taught at university, you know, it's taught at university, so it wants to talk up the contribution of universities to economic growth. And so in this world of modern universities, you're taught the idea that innovations and technological advancement come along because of universities, because of scientists, and because of academics, and because of government research grants. You can see why that is a lot more self-serving than it is true. I present uh, the case for why that is not the case, why it's really innovation on the market that produces the valuable economic innovations. And I cite the work of Terence Keeley, who was also a guest on this podcast uh, once before, I think an episode around number 60 or something like that. Very well worth checking out because it's a very, very well-researched study that he's performed on the economics of scientific and technological advancement. And it flies in the face of the conventional wisdom that you were taught at your universities. In chapter eight, um, when it comes to energy and power, this is a topic that not, not a lot of people will discuss within the context of economics, or at least not very heavily. But I thought it deserved its own chapter. And I make the case for why it's something that I think the Austrian school should just integrate as a fundamental uh, and very essential concept in economics. Our ability to muster large amounts of energy to direct toward meeting our needs 
is one of the most important economic developments of capitalism. And it's only capitalism that allows us to mobilize so much more energy into meeting our daily needs, which is really the most important way in which our lives have improved over the last few hundred years. And uh, one important argument that I make here, which I believe is possibly original, I don't know anybody has, who's made this before, I could be wrong, maybe somebody has, but I make the argument that we cannot talk about energy as being a market good. We cannot talk about energy as being a good. Energy is not really a market good because energy is not scarce. Energy does not have value because energy itself is not scarce. Energy is infinitely available. Remember when I was mentioning value in chapter two, I said we give economic value to things that are scarce because economic value, because then when things are scarce, we need to economize. Well, with energy, energy itself is not really scarce. So every day, more sunlight hits Earth than the energy that all of humanity consumes in a year, roughly. So we already have all of our energy consumption of our whole year is already hitting our planet every day. So it's not really scarce. The energy is not scarce. We have, you know, the amount of hydrocarbon fuels that exist in the crust of the Earth can power our planet for thousands of thousands of years, for thousands of years, according to current modern expenditure of energy. Nuclear fuels are essentially an infinite source of energy for compared to how much energy we consume. And hydroelectric and wind and all of these other uh, natural occurring energy sources, they contain many more uh, amount, many more multiples of the energy that we need. So we don't have an energy scarcity problem. We have a power scarcity problem. The scarcity lies in energy that can be directed at meeting our needs mm -hmm. as we want them to meet our needs when we want to meet our needs. Mm -hmm. And that's what power is. So power is defined as energy over time. The amount of energy that is directed at uh, performing a task or heating an object over a small period of time, over a over a unit of time. And so energy is plentiful and abundant. Power, which is energy per second or per minute or per hour, that's what's really abundant. And so that's what's really scarce. That's where the economy is. And I believe this is a, not just a pedantic point. And in the book, I make the case for why this helps us understand the realities of energy in a way that I believe is very valuable uh, today. Because we live in a world in which people have assumed that we can just get rid of modern industrial civilization and the essentials that make modern industrial civilization, the essential energy sources that make modern civilization possible, and replace them with primitive, low-power sources that are intermittent, that are not available on demand, and basically not have to sacrifice anything. And a lot of this analysis is performed in the sense that they look at energy in the aggregate. It's not economic analysis. It's not analysis carried out at the margin. If you wanted to think about what humans are actually economizing, they're economizing for power at the margin. They're not economizing for energy. So if you're thinking that we're economizing energy, then it becomes useful to look at aggregates. So you can say, well, solar uh, energy can produce this much and wind energy can produce that much and we consume every day that much so that seems that we can meet our needs from solar and wind well no 
doesn't work that way because you're not consuming aggregates, just like when we were discussing the water and diamond question. You're not consuming an aggregate of energy. You need set amounts of power at particular points in time. And once you understand that it's a market for power, then you see where the problems of solar and wind energy are and why hydrocarbon fuels are so um, efficient and useful and so widespread and why that adoption continues to grow and why it's likely to continue to grow further and further into the future. Because hydrocarbons allow you to have high power on demand. And so that's something that's a lot more valuable than large quantities of energy that appear sporadically, not necessarily when you need them. And, you know, the book, this chapter also has more discussion about the economics of the industrial revolution and what energy has done for human freedom. And I argue that really the, the, the development, and it's not just me who's coming up with this on people like Matt Ridley and Don Boudreaux make this argument and I cite them, that it was really the development of high power energy sources and high and access to large amounts of energy through hydrocarbons that is probably the most important driver for the liberation of slaves and the abolishing of slavery because it made manual human labor extremely cheap and it made skilled human labor and voluntary human labor much more valuable when we had uh, you know the highest amount of power that you could get was to have another human being work for you then that was extremely valuable. You know, that person could double the amount of power that you would have to to achieve a job by simply enslaving him. So that made slavery highly attractive. But now that you can get machines that can produce the work of 100 men, and they're much cheaper than enslaving 100 men, it, the, the rationale for enslaving people is gone away. But also, the value of their cooperative voluntary labor, beco labor becomes much higher. Now, you don't, you, if you can have this very expensive, highly productive machine, you want to have people who run it who are happy to run it. It's a very different relationship than having people do grunt slave labor where you can just whip them and have them do the things. You need to have somebody who can run a machine. So they need to be responsible for it. They need to be willing to work on it to be happy with it. And I think this increase in productivity brought about by energy is an enormous factor in human liberation and human freedom. So that then brings us to the end of part two on economy. And then move on to part three. Part three, as I was saying earlier, discusses the market order, how people economize within a market order. And so it begins with trade. It explains the concept of trade, why trade happens, why people exchange things freely. We begin with the analysis of subjective valuation. We discuss absolute advantage versus comparative advantage, the concept of specialization and the division of labor, and the extent of the market. So why trade is so important and why people naturally will want to take care part in economic trading and why this is extremely valuable. And then chapter 10 looks at the next stage. You know, Once people are able to trade, then the next uh, stage in the evolution of economizing is to move toward a system wherein we use a medium of exchange for money. Now that's, uh, in this chapter, I present money from first principles in a way that I believe is even uh, more thorough than uh, what I did in the Bitcoin standard. 
it's sort of laying the foundation for the Bitcoin standard in a sense. So we're beginning with the problem of coincidence of wants and then introduce the concept of saleability as discussed by Menger and why it is very important toward understanding money, why one money emerges, why money tends to be one good. We explain the relationship between money and the state and why money is not an invention of the state. Explain the uniqueness of money as a good and then end with a discussion of the money supply and perhaps another of the most important distinctions between Austrian economists and other economists, which is the question of how much money there should be. For all the other economists, that is a question that is shrouded by mystery. You know, how much money should there be? The, the central bank needs to meet and they need to perform their rituals and who knows, sacrifice a chicken or something like they did in that uh, South Park episode of, on the financial crisis. They, there's some voodoo that you do and then that tells you how much money you need to make. For the Austrian economist, any supply of money is enough. You don't need more of money. You buy money for its purchasing power. So you don't need a money supply that grows. You need a money supply that is divisible so that as its value rises, you can use progressively smaller and smaller units of it. And so you don't need to increase the money supply. The only reason that the money supply is increased is to rob you. Sorry for the bluntness, but that's kind of how it looks. That, that, that is how the how world works. And so once we have money as a means for coordinating economic activity, that leads to the development of the market economy. And in chapter 11, we discussed markets. We discussed how consumer goods markets work, how producer goods markets work. And we discussed how, you know, here we introduce supply curves, demand curves as concepts from that can help us understand how humans make their decisions. And we can understand how the interaction of consumers and producers leads to the emergence of price on the market. And so, as you see here, so as you see in this chapter, we start off again, it's, I mean, this is an Austrian book, so it relies on the written word. But in this chapter, we do bring in some mathematical models of uh, how to understand supply and demand, because I think it is very useful. And the useful thing is that we move from explaining ordinal valuation, consumer valuation from ordinal scales. In other words, you place the value of a good against other goods. And then from that, we derive a demand schedule. And from that, we derive a demand curve. And then similarly, we do a an ordinal demand schedule and an ordinal preference for the producer, which gives us a producer supply schedule, which we can use to produce a producer supply curve. And then from understanding the interaction of the supply curve with the demand curve of the consumer, we managed to explain the concept of market equilibrium, which is something that in the mainstream is viewed as extremely important. In the Austrian perspective, it's not viewed as if it is something that exists. It's viewed as something that is, it's, it's, it's like a magnet that draws the market toward it. The market is always trying to arrive at equilibrium. And so from that, we develop to, we can develop the understanding of how markets work as a mechanism for expressing individual preferences. In other words, consumer sovereignty is what the market system is built upon and that's why i think it's it's such a it's such a powerful concept to understand how markets serve really to give people what they want and with that we come to chapter 12 which is on capitalism and it discusses the concept of capitalism 
what we mean by capitalism. And, you know, a lot of people have all kinds of crazy definitions of capitalism. I like to go with the definition that Mises gave. And it also gives a litmus test that helps us understand what is a capitalist society. And in his mind, a capitalist society is a society that has capital markets, a society that has a free market in capital and has a stock market. In other words, anyone can buy and sell a share in the productive stock of society. That's what constitutes a capitalist market. And in fact, I look into this metric and you find that it's an extremely powerful way of understanding how economies develop. So I, I take as three examples, Germany, Poland, and Russia, and we look at their history and we see how Mises' criteria really fits very well. These countries were capitalists in the years in which they had a stock market and they were not capitalists in the years in which they did not have a stock market. And I think it, it, it fits very well. We then explain the importance of understanding capitalism as an entrepreneurial system. And then the idea of profit and loss, which is the essential entrepreneurial function, that this is what entrepreneurs do according, according to Mises. And that helps us understand the economic calculation problem and the failure of economic central planning and socialist central planning and why Austrians, in particular Mises, understood this issue a hundred years ago in his book, Socialism, and why I believe it is one of the most important contributions that economics has offered. In 1922, the whole world was taken by socialism. Everybody thought this was the future. Mises was one of the very few people who said this is not going to work. And his understanding of why it was not going to work was precisely about economic calculation. It was precisely about the fact that without a free market with protected private property rights for the owners of capital, there is no mechanism for rationally calculating the most efficient and effective uses of, of capital, which in, will therefore result in the misallocation and destruction of capital. Socialism cannot calculate, in the words of Mises. So that is the end of chapter 12. And then chapter 13, 14, and 15, are on monetary economics. These chapters explain the Austrian business cycle theory, and they begin by explaining you know, the, the, the Austrian conception of money and how money works in a society and how the abuse of money causes financial and monetary problems for society. And um, in order to do this, most of the time, most Austrians are, uh, when they try and explain the Austrian perspective, they do so by first trying to refute the mainstream Keynesian perspective, which I believe is, of course, very valuable. But I thought it would be better to just present the Austrian perspective from Austrian first principles. And rather than try and focus on debunking the Keynesians, just present the Austrian story so that it stands on its own. And that on its own, I believe, is the best way to debunk the Keynesian story by just presenting a much more compelling and coherent story. And so to do that, you begin by analyzing time preferences. So chapter 13 begins with time preference and money, why time preference is so important to understanding money. Chapter 14 explains credit and banking. Um, well, before we move on to chapter 14, let me just try and summarize chapter 13. Although it's a very detailed chapter, I would recommend reading it in depth. Uh, ultimately, the key concept here is that from the Austrian perspective, interest rates are determined by time preference. And so the Austrians, um, Bomberg in particular, believe in the pure, in, pure uh, time preference theory of interest. The reason that interest rates exist is because of time preference. And the higher the time preference, the higher the interest rates. So I present that argument and present it 
in order to lay the foundation, as I was saying earlier, for understanding the monetary issues, for why the manipulation of interest rates and the manipulation of money in credit markets results in the business cycle and the failures of the market. In other words, because you're manipulating, and the reason is because you're manipulating a price that is emergent as a product of human action, and instead you're coercively trying to force the price to look different from what humans acting freely would achieve. And so with that foundation in place, we move on to chapter 14, discuss credit and banking, explain banking and how it works, ideally. We explain the concept of credit, and we explain the important distinction that Mises makes between two types of credit, commodity credit and circulation credit. Commodity credit refers to, effectively, any form of credit that requires sacrifice on the part of the person that is granting it. In other words, you're giving out a loan to somebody. If it's a commodity credit loan, then you take money out of your own pocket and you can't spend that money and you give it to the person and that person borrows it. And that is straightforward capital markets. And we explain how these uh, capital markets function. But then the second part of capital, uh, of uh, the second type of capital, or the second type of credit is what Mises calls circulation credit. And in that case, a financial institution or a government is able to issue loans without a, a corresponding sacrifice. They're not putting money aside. They're not taking money as away from their own expenditure in order to grant you that credit. They just make credit out of thin air. And that is the root of the business cycle, as explained by the Austrians. So in chapter 15, we focus on circulation credit. We discuss how Mises divides money and how Mises thinks different types of money. And we explain how circulation credit, in other words, capital that is provided without a sacrifice on the, on the part of the person who is granting the credit, results in the business cycle. And in a sense, it is very obvious why it would do that. Uh, the whole point of money is that it is serving as the medium with which we, use, we perform economic calculation. And the whole point of a free market monetary system and a free market system of, of a free market in capital is that it forces people to make accurate decisions by forcing them to bear the cost of these decisions. In other words, you have to perform economic calculation, and if you perform it incorrectly, you lose your capital. When you take that away, when you allow people to have this luxury of somehow having capital that doesn't require sacrifice, then it becomes likely or it becomes possible for people to just treat, you know, to, to generate capital without any corresponding sacrifice, which therefore means no capital is actually um, set aside for this production process. You're trying to manufacture capital out of thin air. Effectively, the, the metaphor that I like to use is that it's similar to a football stadium looking to expand its capacity so that they could fit in more fans. But rather than building more seats for fans to come into the stadium, they just issue more tickets. That's ultimately what circulation credit is. Now, so this then brings us to explain the business cycle. And so I come at, you know, this is kind of, this was one of the toughest parts of the book to structure. And this is where I got really stuck for a very long time, trying to structure these three chapters and the previous chapters, particularly the ones about money. And I decided this would be the ideal way to do it, to just discuss money conceptually in chapters 10 and 11. 
discuss the economic calculation problem. And then once we introduce the concept of banking and credit, again, we discuss these from the Austrian perspective. And then once we have money and credit and banking elaborated, then all you need to do is just explain circulation credit and why it is different from commodity credit. And then the Austrian business cycle theory becomes almost the inevitable conclusion. I found this to be a very powerful way of arriving at that conclusion, which is rather than begin with a Keynesian story and try to explain why it's wrong and then present the Austrian story and then end by going back to the time preference theory of interest and try and make the case for that, I start off from Austrian from scratch. So what is money? What is time preference? How interest rate is reflected? And then uh, what happens when interest rates are manipulated through the issuing of circulation credit, and then how this results in business cycles. One small note here in chapter 14, I discuss the, in the last section of chapter 14, I discuss the question of can interest be eliminated? Is it possible to eliminate interest in a market? And this is probably the one place where I differ with uh, the Austrians in the most in the whole book, probably maybe the only place really where I um, explicitly disagree with Mises and Rothbard and uh, the rest of them. And I present my idea for why I think on a free market interest rate would eventually be eliminated. And in a nutshell, I mean, it's a sophisticated argument, which I recommend you read in detail. But if I were to summarize it, I would say that in a nutshell, from the Austrian perspective, as I was saying, the interest, the, the interest rate is driven by time preference. So as time preference declines, the interest rate declines. As time preference declines, people save more. So capital becomes more and more abundant. And so it becomes cheaper for people to borrow it. So at some point, uh, you know, time preference continues to drop. If time preference were to continue to drop, the interest rate will continue to drop. There will come a point at which the interest rate is going to drop below the cost of storing money. In other words, simply at that point, if let's imagine that storing money costs 1% and the time preference for, for lenders continues to drop because of the accumulation of more savings, and this, you know, you'd have to have a hard money for this. If you have very hard money, the money gains value. Over time, the money appreciates. People have more and more capital. And as the capital appreciates, they become wealthier. So then they have more capital available for them. And so they have an even lower price for capital to lend it out. So if at some point the interest rate that they can get on the market drops under the cost of carrying, uh, the cost of storing the money. So in this case, imagine 1%. So simply holding on to your money costs you 1% in terms of the storage, but lending it out will get you 0% nominal interest. Then lending it out at 0% nominal interest is preferable to holding on to it because you lend it out, you don't have to pay the cost of storage. And so the person who's spending that money is responsible for bringing it back at par value with a nominal interest rate of zero, but that is still a positive real interest rate because it is saving you on the cost of storage. And similarly, it's also a positive interest rate because the value of money is appreciated because we'd have a hard money in this case. So Schumpeter and Bomberg and Hoppe and Mises all discuss the decline in interest rate as being the process of civilization. 
the lower our time preference, the lower the interest rates, the more capital is abundant, the more investors can invest, the more entrepreneurs can secure capital, the higher our productivity. And so what I did in this chapter is try to ask the question, okay, well, what happens if we didn't go off the gold standard? What happens if we stayed on a hard monetary standard? Wouldn't this lead to more and more decline in time preference, which then inevitably would cause interest rates to decline to zero? That is uh, my case for it. I've not heard a uh, compelling counter argument so far. So if you have one, dear listener, please do present it. If anybody here in the seminar has one, please do present it. And then the final part of the book, part five, is a little different from what you would usually expect from most economics textbook. It's on civilization and it discusses the topic of civilization and how humans can live together in a civilized society. And it begins with the discussion of violence. And so the first chapter in this part, chapter 16, is on violence. Chapter 17 is on defense, how people defend against violence. And then chapter 18 is civilization, how we are able to build civilization. And so generally, a lot of people are critical of economists because they say, oh, well, economists don't understand political realities and they don't understand that, you know, uh, we need defense or we need, a we need the government, we need a monopoly on force. Some of these common objections that people present is, no, um, you can't have a market in everything because you only can have a market if you have a monopoly enforced. This is one of those horrible Marxist ideas that circulates in academia that you can only have a market if you have a monopoly enforced. And in this part of the book, I go through these kind of claims and explode them one by one. I discuss the concept of violence and I basically present the framework of economics that we've used based on the first three chapters, marginal analysis, utility, value, human action, all of that can also be applied to studying violence and defense and civilization. And so defense is just another economic good, and it's a good that is provided on the market, and there is a market for it. And the main point that I try and come across here is that only in government propaganda is government out there protecting you from violence. In reality, we already have a free market in violence and in defense. In reality, the vast majority of people's spending on defense is in a market context. So the market for defense is uh, arguably much bigger than anything, much bigger than anything that states do. So already we know that uh, there are more private policemen, private security guards in the world than there are public security guards, that there are policemen and the uh, military. We already see this everywhere in the world. Everybody who's got something valuable to protect relies on private security. It's a lot more common. We see it in private law and arbitration, and we see how the market is constantly providing those things. Because remember, you know, you, you'd like to think that these are aggregate goods, as we were discussing in the earlier chapters. You'd like to think that this is you know, it's the same fallacy that non-economic analysts perform when they look into things like energy or into looking at any market. And so they tend to think of defense as being something that, can, that is a switch. Either you have a government that can protect the entire country and the borders, or you don't. And so for that, it needs to be provided by aggregate, by one monopolist, and that monopolist needs to be able to charge and force people. Well, no, in reality, it's just another market good and it's provided at the margin. 
defense and security consists of individual services and goods provided by individual owners of capital goods and individual workers. And the extent that each individual gets to enjoy these products for defense and service is a marginal extent. So there's a choice to be made every morning. How many policemen are you going to get to protect your neighborhood or your house? Should you get your own policeman to protect your house or should you get one policeman for the whole street or should you get one policeman for the whole town? These are questions and the answer for them is ultimately an economic answer. And so I make the case for why in reality we already live in a world in which the market is taking care of defense. The vast majority of people who want to actually defend their property rely on the market for defense. And the government, in fact, is primarily in the business of protecting the government and not protecting you. And here there's a great quote by Rothbard says, look at the enthusiasm with which government prosecutes crimes against government versus crimes against individual citizens. And you'll get a very good idea about whose interests the governments are serving. And finally, chapter 18 presents the concept of civilization and why really capitalist economic production and the capitalist market order is our only way of achieving civilization, of living in a civilized society. And I think of what I would define as civilization, what a lot of people define as civilization is the ability of a generation to give its next, to give the next generation life better than the generation that they had. So if you're able to live in, a, if you're able to give your child a life that's better than yours, then effectively you've lived in a civilized society. You've been able to accumulate enough capital and to improve the quality of your life throughout your life to the point where your child gets a better life than you. And so if you live in this kind of society where people have better lives than their parents over decades and centuries, that, that is a civilizational process. And the only way to achieve that, you know, it's this is a, this is the kind of punchline of this book is that, you know, everybody wants the nice things that civilization offers us. Everybody would like to have a house that is protected uh, from the elements and from rain and from storms. Everybody would like to secure the food that they need. Everybody would like to have all the nice, fancy things that civilization gives us. But the only way that we can secure those things is if we have a civilized capitalist order. If we have a society in which people are able to cooperate peacefully and a society in which goods only exchange, only change hands based on the mutual agreement of all parties involved, a society in which people accept the concept of self-ownership, a society in which people accept each other's property rights in themselves and in their objects. Only if we have that, are we able to have a society that can give you a better life than your father and your child a better life than yours? It's really, I mean, at, at, at some point there's the, so I, I go through the arguments for civilization and it's, you know, why should you even care for civilization? Why should we want to do this? And, you know, uh, somebody like Nietzsche who talks about the problems of civilization and uh, Mises, uh, makes good fun of him for this, which is, you know, Nietzsche talks about how civilization is destructive to the spirit of man, that, that men should man should be out there 
being a brute savage and enjoying life as a brute savage. And uh, Mises basically <laughs> mocks Nietzsche for saying this. He's saying, you know, well, you know, Nietzsche is, he was so weak and sick that he could barely survive and he could only live in certain places with certain kind of weather because he was just so weak. And he just, in, in, in his weakness and in his uh, library study, writing all these interminable books, he could imagine that as a society, if only we would just get rid of the repression of society and go back to being brute animals, then everybody would be happy. But I, what he misses, because he doesn't quite understand the economics from the Austrian perspective like Mises does, what he misses is that if we didn't have civilized society that is so evilly repressing you, Mr. Nietzsche, you'd be dead. You would have been dead a long, long, long time ago before you were in any position to write all these diatribes about how great it is to have savages and how repressive civilization is. The reality is that without civilization, humans are one of the weakest animals. Without our ability to use reason, without our ability to cooperate with one another, without our ability to peacefully cooperate with and being, without our ability to be civilized with one another, we are just another monkey with a very, very weak chance of survival in the jungle against all the other more powerful predators. We are not the fastest, we are not the strongest, we are not the biggest, we don't have the sharpest teeth. We are no match for lions and tigers and gorillas and many other animals. But what we do have is our brain, and in particular, not just our brain individually, our brains collectively, our ability to cooperate, our ability to build technologies, our ability to accumulate capital. This is why humans have subjugated animals, not the other way around. This is why we are not afraid of lions, because we live in civilized societies that have very, very effective defenses against lions and bears and other predators. And this is why we are much stronger than all these brutes. And this is why we are able to survive much better uh, in this world than we would if we were brutes. And so the problem with the people who make the case against civilization, against capitalism, is that essentially they're they're arguing for on the one hand they they're arguing for might is right they're arguing for life should be a jungle and uh, the weak should fear the strong and the strong should take what they want and that's just the natural order of things and by that own metric you know if you lived that life all that you would do is that you would be just another animal slinging your shit at other animals and the hunting other animals and getting hunted by other animals. You would be a very weak animal if you were a human being that just relied on brute force and you act like a savage. You'd be a very weak animal compared to the animals that use their most powerful muscle, their reason. And so human beings who can cooperate, human beings who can reason, human beings who can trade with one another, human beings who can accept each other's property, Human beings who can accept to live in a civilized situation wherein we all accept each other's right to self-ownership and the ownership of physical property, and we trade with one another, and we serve one another. You know, this is the important thing about why capitalism works, is because you're constantly out there trying to serve others in order for you to benefit. This system allows us to move 
mountains. The system allows us to dominate all other species. It allows us to become much stronger. So if it really is about strength and if it was might is right, nothing is mightier than the modern civilized man. Modern civilized man who's been able to invent the weapons that can kill any barbarian. And so, you know, you can glorify violence, you can glorify the might is right, but that just means the people who are able to cooperate, the people who accept private property rights, the people who accept civilized living are going to be much more powerful. A 10-year-old girl armed with a gun is much more powerful than the most powerful brute man with his bare hands. She could kill him with one gun. But just pulling a tiny little trigger, she could kill him. Why? Because when she pulls on that gun, she is pulling on, she's adding one tiny little marginal step, which is just a flick of the finger on the gun. But to have access to that gun, she had to be part of a civilized order that has developed these guns over centuries, that has made them stronger, more efficient, better, and more effective at doing what they do. Only by being part of this kind of economic system are you able to access these weapons that make you powerful, that make you much more powerful than the savages, both animals, savages, and human savages, who refuse to accept this. And so this is kind of the positive note on which the book ends, which is that ultimately, you know, if we look around us, we see a lot of reasons to be upset about the state of the world. We see that the ability of people to save is destroyed by fiat money. The ability of people to engage in trade is destroyed by governments in many cases. The ability to accumulate capital is destroyed by inflation and by taxes and by government regulation. And so there's a lot to be despondent about in the state of the world and the state of capitalism. But in this chapter, I make the case ultimately that all of these are not the death of capitalism. They are just the latest round of animals that we have to conquer, that we have to tame. So we've had to deal with lions, we've had to deal with bears, we've had to deal with all kinds of enemies, we've had to deal with other human beings not caring about our property and not respecting us. And now today we deal with this threat in a much more advanced way, in the sense, in, in the sense of all these governments that are able to print their own money, that are able to disenfranchise and rob their people by just printing and creating money out of thin air. It is a serious threat. It is very powerful. But I believe writing this book made me become more and more optimistic about our ability to defeat that threat. Because ultimately, people who have access to capitalism, people who have access to civilized free trade, people who have access to economic system that allows for trade and capital accumulation and technological advancement are going to always be more powerful, the enemies who refuse those things, who fight those things. Ultimately, doesn't matter how big and bad and violent you are, if you don't have access to a market economy, it only takes one child who has access to a gun from the market economy to kill you. And so, in my mind, triumph of reason ought going to be that we are going to find a way to allow capitalist civilization to continue to function in spite of the aggression of governments. And I think that way is 
Bitcoin because it is truly the technical solution to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is money. The root of the problem is money as explained in part four of the book on monetary economics because it destroys our ability to have an, uh, a civilized market order. And, and in this last chapter, I go through all of the chapters of the book and explain how the destruction of money undermines all of these things. It undermines our ability to economize our time. It undermines our ability to save the fruits of our labor, undermines our ability to maintain our property and to think of the long term. It undermines our ability to accumulate capital and lower our time preference to develop technology and to use more energy and power because inflation is impoverishing everybody and we're not able to use this as i discussed this in more detail in the fiat standard it's destroying global trade it's destroying people's access to money as an economic good it's destroying our markets it's destroying the capitalist economic system destroying our time preference raising everybody's time preference ruining the institutions of credit and banking turning them into giant casinos and ponzi schemes and it's allowing money to be infinite in the hands of governments, which is a violent monopoly that uses that violence to protect its own interests rather than the interests of its people. And so a lot to be depressed about, but I believe in the end, a lot more to be optimistic about. And that's basically my summary of the book. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be posting a few more chapters from the audiobook on the podcast so stay tuned you can check them out any questions so is it fair to say then that a fiat currency is incompatible with an austrian economic system or perhaps saying in a different way that something like bitcoin is a necessity to be able to fully implement a society that's based on an austrian economic model i mean I don't like to say it this way because I don't think there is a society based on an Austrian economics model because that mm -hmm. makes it sound like it's kind of a Marxist idea of what an economy should be, that it should be done this way or it should be done that way. I don't really, and in a sense, I think Austrian economics is valid regardless of what kind of money you have. So mm -hmm. um, you, you look at Cambodia and Austrian economics helps you understand why Cambodia suffered the famine in the 70s. And it helps you understand why the U.S. is like it is today. And so it's it's not like you need Bitcoin in order for Austrian economics to work. But I think you need sound money in order for capitalist civilization to work. That's that's what I think. And the, the case that I make in this book is that ultimately the choice uh, and and Mises also makes this case. I get it from Mises. Is there's no middle ground. We either have a free market or we keep sliding toward complete control and authoritarianism and yeah money is really the so on that slippery slope yeah money is what makes the slope very slippery like yeah i mean ultimately what it is if you think about it in economic terms and in this book it's just constantly me trying to think things from first principles what we have is a banking cartel that is in charge mm -hmm. of the money supply and they get to make money out of thin air and so if you put a cartel in charge of any good you're going to have trouble you know there's in, in in a country in which there's a cartel for uh, fuel you're going to have problems with fuel and in a country in which there's a cartel for banks you're going to have problems with banks and that indeed is what we experience in today's world we have all these problems that, that are multiplying everywhere 
And I believe the root of most economic problems comes from the fact that you're undermining money. You take away the ability of money. The, the, you take away the ability of people to use money on the market. And you basically think of it as like the glue that holds the piece, the puzzle pieces together. It's like you have this giant puzzle and only with money are we able to coordinate all of this economic activity. So everything, all of these forms of economizing that I mentioned earlier, they're all possible because of money. And then ruin the money, ruin the world, basically. Thank you, sir. One question from my side, more of a more of a wish, honestly. It's a, it's amazing. Book looks really great. Can can't wait to get it. Last year, reading the, the Fiat Standard uh, in the format with the with the course that we made here, the lectures, the discussions was one of the deepest uh, learning experiences I, I ever had. Like I had never taken six months to read a book and uh, yeah. delve so deep into it. So it's more of a question if uh, you have considered doing something similar with principles of economics, going through it. I mean, if week by week is too much of a world for you, maybe every second week dedicate one of the seminars to discussing one chapter in a sequential order or do it, do something like that, because that was for me extremely valuable last year. And just wanted to give that also as, as a feedback. It was really awesome. This is definitely the plan. Starting in September, we're going to be doing an, uh, an, a Principles of Economics course with the weekly lectures and weekly discussions. That's the plan. So if you go to the website right now, if you sign up, you'll be able to take five courses that I've done. But I have to say over the last three and a half years, when I've well, it's almost four years now that I've been working on this website. Uh, so I've done five courses and I've posted them, but my real focus and my real creative energy has gone toward the writing of the books uh, more than the teaching. So I haven't spent as much time focused on developing teaching much so now that the book is out because i because i was writing books so initially you know the, the two courses economics 101 uh, economics 11 and economics 12 they were the foundation of this course of this book so i made the two courses and then i wrote the book based on these and so now i'm gonna but of course there's been a lot of changes and a lot of improvements on the courses to make the book and now based on the book I'm going to make a new uh, course that's going to be that I'm going to be doing over the essentially the next academic year, starting from September, and it's going to be yeah weekly lectures and uh, seminars and discussions. So watch the space and stay signed up on safetydean.com. Awesome! Can't wait. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining. I hope you enjoyed this, and we'll see you uh, next week. Take care. <laughs>